Friends, if you want to turn to God's Word this evening, we are in 1 Samuel 26. Uh, John was preaching last week, uh, and he was taking us through 1 Samuel 25, Abigail and the Baal, the the fool and bloodshed was averted by the wisdom uh, of Abigail. Tonight, uh, those figures fade into the background, and it's David and Saul, once again, on page 249 of the Pew Bible. And just two chapters ago, David spurred Saul. And it seems that nothing's changed, because in this chapter, David spurs Saul once again. Despite the apologies, despite the promises to leave David alone, it seems that Saul is never going to learn. 1 Samuel 26, page 249, and this is the word of God. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Achilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Achilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped round him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and the Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there, Saul, there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay round him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I shall put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that, it is, that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, 
the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let the Lord my king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. But David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king, that one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for the Lord give you into my hand today. And I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Amen. And we thank God tonight for his word. Probably every one of us in this church tonight will have heard the words at some point, I'm really, really, really sorry. I'm really sorry. I'm so, so, so sorry. And then just when you realize how sorry that individual is, they promise, I will never do it again. Ladies, no doubt you will take that wee book home tonight that gives you prayers to pray for your husband And maybe one of them is that that he'll say sorry and he'll mean it. And he'll not just say sorry so he can get back to watching the TV. Gentlemen, you should be ashamed of yourselves. You need to be more like me. (laughs) Don't think so. But I'm really, really, really sorry. I'm really sorry and I'll never do it again. I'm so, so sorry. And inevitably what happens? The same thing. Doesn't it? Your sister. Do you remember your sister? She was never going to steal your boyfriend ever again. And what did she do? She stole your boyfriend. She did it again. Or your brother who who promised and, and absolutely swore that he would never, ever, ever make fun of you again in front of all your friends. What did he do? He made fun of you and all your friends. Or you're in work and, and the boss promises he's, 
He's never going to overlook you again for overtime because you're a valued member of this company. And what did he do? Next time it goes to the same old person, the golden child in, in section B, the favorite. I'm so, 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 so sorry. It's never going to happen again. Unfortunately, folks, life is often full of those kind of sorries. We, we're always trying to teach our girls about saying a proper sorry. Uh, when you hit your sister, you don't just say, I'm sorry. To get on with life, you, you have to mean it. There has to be hugs and, and, and depth of feeling and actual, real, proper sorriness. Why do we start there? Because Saul was really, really, really sorry. Really sorry. David, I, I'm, I'm so, so sorry, and I'm, and I'm never going to do this again. A few weeks ago you were here, or hopefully you were here, and you would have read in 1 Samuel 24 about the wonderful story when, when Saul goes into a cave and the scripture said to, to relieve himself. He's caught a little bit short because David and the boys are in the cave, and that's the chance David could take his life. And instead he, he just cuts a little bit of Saul's cloak. And he says, I'm not going to extend my hand against the Lord's anointment. And what does Saul say? I'm really, really sorry. First Samuel 24, verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He was really, 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 really sorry. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David accepted the apology. Verse 22 says, David swore this to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul was really, 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 really sorry. You have spurred my life, and this will never happen again, David. And guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. Because after we get through chapter 25 with Nabal the fool and his beautiful wife Abigail, who, who manages to turn away uh, David's anger from killing her husband, once again, as chapter 26 begins, the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah and said, David's hiding. Again, we know where he is. He's on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon. And you think to yourself, well, well, we have already heard a sermon on chapter 24. And in that sermon, we heard how sorry Saul was. He was really, really, really sorry. So obviously, he will tell the Ziphites they want to hear it. Me and David are all squared up. He's a good lad. He didn't kill me. He could have killed me in the cave. He didn't do it. I respect him and honor him. So away you go, Mr. and Mr. Siphite. What happens? Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Nothing changes. Those who stand against us are often really, really, really sorry until the next time, until the next opportunity where they can cause you difficulty and cause you harm and make you look stupid and make you feel bad and cast up things from the past and, and make you feel this high. 
I'm really, really sorry. But not really. That's what's going on here. Saul's rage against David has not abated. David has spurred his life. Saul has wept before him, cried out before him, David, I, I, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. You've dealt well with me and I've poured evil out on you. Things are going to be different. Until just a chapter later, and Saul gathers the boys again because David is within touching distance. Folks, tonight I want to speak simply to those of you who know what that is like. And certainly we are not in David's shoes. We are not the Lord's anointed in his grand story of redemption. And, uh, and certainly we can't say that probably we have individuals who have sought our life, but, but sometimes in life we know what it is like to be unfairly treated and unfairly despised, and, and it seems that it's never going to come to an end. Why does that difficulty that you have prayed about never seem to abate? Why is it that despite the fact that you have cried out to the Lord constantly, does that individual in that situation never seem to go away? And we've sung that last song about the Lord's frowning providence. And for some of you, you, you feel that that's all you see. God's frowning providence. Why is it, Lord, that my family is in a mess? Why is it that I get the blame constantly? Why is it that she said sorry and then just six months later did the same thing again? It's not fair. Sure it's not. And it stings and it hurts. When we are criticized harshly, it, it breaks our hearts. When we know half the country is talking about us, we, we are embarrassed and ashamed. When those who once upon a time had our backs no longer seem to do so, well, well we feel just cut adrift. We have heard those so-called proper sorries before. But we feel that we're now in the place of David once again on the run from the person that said... It's all sorted out, David. I'm never going to do this again. You've dealt well with me, and please forgive me. Friends, as we've said throughout these books and this, uh, these chapters, we should not be surprised that often trouble comes to those of us who love the Lord. It shouldn't often be a surprise when, when we in this world have tribulation. It is exactly what the Lord said that we would have. Do not be surprised when the world hates you, says Jesus. Take heart because it has hated me first. Take heart because I have overcome the world. These things should not surprise us. And so while we are well prepared for them to come to our door, it's still hard to take when they do come to our door. But tonight I want you to see, folks, that not only will the Lord protect you, but the Lord indeed providentially is in control of the situation that you face. Because in this chapter, it seems that Saul has got the upper hand. Remember, David is running about the wilderness with only about 600 men. David is running about the wilderness, and it seems that everybody and their granny wants to sell him out. The Ziphites can't wait to get down to Saul to say, we know where David is. It seems that David is on his own. The world is against him. And yet that isn't how this passage works itself out. Saul has everything in his favor. Except the Lord. Saul has everything in his favor. Except the Lord. We read in this passage that David goes and watches to see where Saul had encamped. And in verse 5, 
David saw where the place was that Saul lay with, with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And get this, folks. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped about him. I was thinking this week about the time when in 37 Hollycroft Avenue we were getting a bit of work done. And my dad slept down the stairs, not to protect the family, but because he had got a brand new TV and he didn't want somebody sneaking in the back and stealing the TV. I'm very thankful for my father's bravery. We were able to watch the TV. Nobody ever nicked it. That's, that's great. But that's what Saul's up to. He's, he's in the middle of the encampment and everybody's around him because the king is precious and we're going to defend him. And you think, well, how will little old David actually be able to do anything here in this situation? Abishai is with him. They go down together. They, they look at the camp and and yes, there is Saul sleeping in the encampment, verse 7, with the spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. And often in our own lives, when we are dealing with those messy situations and we look at them, it seems absolutely clear that we will not be able to stand. How can we stand when it seems that, that a family has turned its back on us? How can we stand when it seems that that the lies that have been told about us are believed by everybody. How can we stand in a, in a workplace that is hostile to us because they know that we are one of those Christian types? How can we stand against such a fierce enemy? Well, friends, the encouragement here in this passage is that even though Saul looked like he had the upper hand, even though it seemed that there was no way David could do a thing about this, the Lord was not on Saul's side. We're reminded here, aren't we, in, in Mark's Gospel, what the Lord Jesus told us. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? That, unfortunately, is the sad story of Saul. Despite the moments of weeping, and it seems repentance and it seems that he seeks David's forgiveness despite those moments Saul is on that slippery slope to hardness upon hardness upon hardness he might have everything a kingdom and an army and money and wives and power and authority it might seem that no one can touch him and he sleeps in the midst of an army but when the Lord is against you you cannot stand David and Abishai see all of this. And they go down into the encampment at night. The scriptures tell us in verse 12 that, that the Lord has sent a great and deep sleep on all the army and on Saul. You know, again, back in 37 Hollycroft Avenue, you'd have been out late at night and you, you were climbing the stairs. You thought you'd sneaked in past wee Linda's bedroom and all you'd hear is, Is that you, Scott? My mother didn't sleep until everybody was in the house. But in this case, our great king is in the middle of us. Nobody is going to get past, and every single one of them is out for the count. When the Lord is against you, then you should quake. David and Abishai managed to get down into the middle of the encampment. They're right by Saul. And in verse 8, Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please, let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. I think we all need a buddy like that, don't we? Maybe some of you have a buddy like that. I'll go and speak to her. Give me ten minutes with him. I'll sort it out. But what do we do in those moments as Christians? 
We might love our buddy Abishai to go down the street and direct the place on our behalf. But what do we do in those moments as Christians when it seems that the problem that we have been having, well, the, the solution is right there. Do we meet sin with sin? Do we meet rage with rage? Do we meet violence with violence, rumor with rumor, lie with lie? That's a temptation, isn't it? What is it your mother used to say to you? Somebody hits you, you hit them back. Maybe not all mums said that, but I know my mum did, maybe your mum did. If he hits you, you hit him back. And then you came home and you'd been in trouble for fighting and your mum would hit you because you were fighting. You thought, you told me to fight. You couldn't win. But isn't that what we're, we're bred into us? Don't let anybody walk over you. If you get hit, you hit back. You stand up for yourself. And when it comes to the Christian life, Certainly that's in us, isn't it? Well, let me tell you a wee story about your man. He might have said that about me, but would I tell you about him? Let me tell you the truth of this situation. Let me defend my honor. Nabashai says to David, there's the problem. Lying there fast asleep. He has no clue that we're all here. We could kill him now. I will take a spear. I will pin him to the earth with one stroke. I'll not need to do it twice. Give me the nod, David, and I will sort out this problem. And David says, Do not destroy him, verse 9, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, says David, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. And what we see there in that response, folks, is that David understands completely the Christian life which says, I have been wronged, I have been hurt, I have been on the run, this situation is a mess and it seems that I can sort it out with just one stroke of a pen or one swipe of a hand or, or, or one lie from my mouth, it seems that I can fix it myself. But instead, says David, this is not the road I will go. In David's eyes, Saul was still the Lord's anointed. He wasn't going to be guilty of Saul's blood. It wasn't his place. He has already made that clear. I will not strike the Lord's anointed. But in verse 10, he, he trusts the Lord's frowning providence. Wouldn't it be great for David not to have to worry who was coming down the road to get him? Not to be constantly on the run. Wouldn't it be wonderful? And even though that moment seemed to have come, David says, no. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. His day will come to die, or he will perish in battle. As the Lord lives, says David, I will trust his providence. It is not for me to seek to sort out this problem just now. It is not for me to give the nod to have my enemy, my arch enemy, a man who would seek my life. It is not for me to give the nod to have this man pinned to the ground with his own spear. The Lord forbids, says David in verse 11, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. Isn't it interesting that, that when the Lord moves against the enemies of his people, he takes from them that which they need the most. David takes the spear of Saul. 
this symbol of Saul's power and authority, the king and his spear. And it is this very same spear that, that we've already seen Saul hurling at the head of David. On multiple occasions, Saul flings this at David to, to try and pin him to the wall. It's this very same spear that Saul has flung at his own son, Jonathan, to try and take his life because Jonathan is speaking for David. It is this very spear that Saul, under the tamarisk tree, sits with his hand and calls his men into battle. He says, let's go get David. Let's go get this sorted. And what happens this night? Fast asleep, Saul doesn't have a clue, but he loses that symbol of his power. It's slipping through his finger. And not only that, but... But the water is taken away from him, the jug, the jug of water by his head. Folks, I'm thankful to say that we live in a land where water is plentiful. But I know from watching survival programs, I, I reckon I could probably survive all right in a survival situation. If my car ever breaks down and say drum and ass or, or somewhere out in the wilderness, I think I'll be okay. Not just because of a, a good bit of natural padding to work my way through before I die, but, but because I've watched Burr Grylls and Ed Stafford and all these guys who teach you to survive in tough times. And what is it they always say? What do you need to find first? Water. And you might be licking your lips at that big hippo you see out in the, the savannah and you're going to kill it and eat for it like a king, but, but they say, no, get water first. Because you and me, we can live for about three weeks or so without food, but about three or four days without water. So what does the Lord take from Saul? He's not pinned to the ground, but hugely, symbolically, we see that the enemy of God's people lose everything. Saul's lying there, and the, the symbol of his power is gone, and the jug of water symbolizing his life and his, and his need is, is removed. And folks, I want you to see that tonight, because... Again, I always try to preach in the understanding that not everybody in the congregation is part of the same team. Now, you might be. Praise God if that is the case. Uh, the Lord knows who belongs to him, but I don't. So let me just simply say this. If you are tonight against Christ, then that is an awful place to be. We think that we can trifle with the Lord, don't we? We think that we can play games with him. Saul had numerous opportunities to repent. Uh, an opportunity in a cave when David could take his life and David doesn't do it. Saul has an opportunity with tears streaming down his face to repent. And the Ziphites come and say, Saul, we know, where, we know where David is. It's an opportunity to repent. It's an opportunity to say, no, I will not seek his life. He has done no wrong. He is the future king. The Lord is on his side. May the Lord forgive me. But what happens? Saul does not repent. And folks, the same story happens here. Later on, when David and Saul talk to each other uh, across a valley on, on up atop uh, rival mountains, Saul cries out and says, Oh, David, I'm, I'm so, so sorry. He does it all again, but ultimately, he doesn't repent. Friends, tonight, if you are an enemy of Christ, then understand your spiritual condition and understand the hopelessness of it the Lord is not on your side. And if that is the case, then know that in the final day, you will lose everything. All that you hold dear, the, the power and the authority and the reputation, everything you think is of, of more value than Christ, it will be taken from you. There's I saw lying sleeping at peace. 
He thinks no one can touch him. I've got my enemy, or I've got my, my army around me. What enemy is going to be able to get me? And what happens? The Lord moves, a deep sleep falls upon them, and he wakes up to discover all the things that he needs to, to function and operate as a king and as a human. They're gone. And friends, understand that. In a blink of an eye, your life could be demanded from you, and then who will get all that you have made for yourself? Friends, this evening, understand the one who gains Christ loses absolutely nothing. And the one who gains Christ this hour will be the richest man, woman, or child on this planet. Friends, Saul needed Jesus. He didn't need a spear and he didn't need the jug of water. He needed to drink from the fountain where he would never thirst again. He needed Jesus but did not repent. Do not be in that place. This Easter, may your eyes see Christ as he is, crucified for sin and raised for justification. And when the day comes, may you be found on the Lord's side. Saul wasn't pinned to the ground. But his spear was gone, his jug of water was gone, and David was in a place where he realized that ultimately the Lord would fight for him. The Lord would work in Saul's life whenever, wherever, however he would choose. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly hard at times to believe. We are hardwired to the fight for ourselves, aren't we? That we independent streak that we prayed about at the start of the service, that's, that's in every one of us. We close the door at night and we, we check the windows and we turn off the plugs and we go to bed and with, with that baseball bat onto the bed, that's not for the burglars, that's just for the wife in case she tries to get you in the night. But you know what we're like? Independent. We will fight for ourselves. David realizes I trust the Lord in this. The Lord will repay. You know, one of the most tender insights, I think, into the Apostle Paul's life comes in 2 Timothy 4. I think whenever we consider the life of Paul, we, we just think of this great man of faith and he goes about preaching the gospel and, and he sees thousands converted and, and to live a life like that, it must be glorious, mustn't it? Imagine being a Paul. You'd rather be a Paul, wouldn't you, than a, than a Woodburn or a Curry or whatever you are. You'd rather be like, God, what a glorious life. And yet in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 9, I see loneliness. And I see a, a man who knows what it is to be betrayed and let down and to stand alone. A man who, who sees what it is to, to understand to be, to be in this world with enemies all around you and, and not knowing who you can turn to. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for my ministry. Pygius I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. 
Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Can you read those words? And suddenly your picture of, of this great preacher, this great missionary, this, this man that saw thousands coming to Christ, suddenly, suddenly you see him as he was, just a man, who if you cut him, he bled. If you slapped him, he hurt. If you called him names, he felt it. And we know a wee bit about that from Paul's life. There were many who slandered him, many who, who said that he wasn't telling the truth, many who deserted him. I read this and, and I, I can sympathize, as I'm sure you can as well. At times in our life it feels that, that when we need someone to defend us, no one comes. All desert us. But I'm always struck in those verses that Paul doesn't respond to that betrayal by taking things into his own hands. He doesn't seek a buddy who will come and pin his enemies to the ground and he'll not have to hit him twice. Paul says about Alexander the coppersmith, the Lord will repay him. And when he talks about all who have deserted him, he says, may it not be charged against them. In the loneliness of the apostle's life and in the moments where his heart was breaking because all his friends had cleared off, still Paul knew that the Lord would repay. It is David himself who says in Psalm 34 and verse 7, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And I'm sure you know by this stage that whenever you read about the angel of the Lord, we're seeing Christ in the Old Testament, and it is Jesus who, David says, encamps around those who fear God. Friends, this week, I can't magically take your problems away. I would love to be that friend that comes and says, I'll sort it out, I'll, I'll hit them a slap. You know, I don't know what your upbringing was like, but I remember back in the day, if, if someone crossed you and you went home and told your mother, she would go round to that person. Did you have mothers like that in Ballinhinch? I'd go round to her. I'd go and sort it out. And you better believe you needed to tell the truth. Because if Linda went round to sort it out and discovered you were a wee dirtbag, then you were in big trouble. I'd love to be that friend. But I can't be. And I would love to take away the sore bits of your life where you have been betrayed by family or friends. But I can't take those away. But what I can do tonight is come and, and point you to the Word of God, which is like a balm to our, our sore and weary souls. And I can assure you that still the reality of God's Word is true for you and for me, that, that whenever we face the souls of this life who would seek our life and seek our harm and always seem to be against us. And Lord, when will it end? The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And the angel of the Lord delivers us. Folks, I don't know when that delivery will come. I don't know if you have another year of this, another ten years. I don't know if that situation that breaks your heart will will last to the day that you die. I don't know. 
I do know that ultimately the one who has trusted the Lord will not be put to shame, will not be forsaken, will not be forgotten. And I pray tonight in a wonderful and lovely way that that as you get into your wee bed, maybe thinking about your man, Jim, or whoever it is, that situation, that you will know that you are like Saul, surrounded not by a sleepy army, but, but surrounded by the angel of the Lord. And he never sleeps. And he never switches off. And he is constantly for his people. David knew this. And so Saul in the cave was not killed by the hand of David. And sleepy Saul in the midst of the army was not pinned to the ground by the hand of one of David's buddies. David knew that the Lord would repay. And friends, what is the antidote to to the times in our lives where we are tenderly hurt and sore and, and, and just in bits? Well, I marvel at this passage because David's whole desire in this, his whole passion, is that he wants to worship again. He wants once more to be in the place where he can go and, and sing praises to his God. The story ends with everybody in the camp waking up. David goes as far away as he can, another hill, another mountain, and he shouts into the camp, and he makes fun of Abner. He says, what are you playing at? You're fast asleep, and I could have been down and killed the king. And Saul cries out to David. And they have this conversation. And they talk and they they put it right or it seems that they do. Saul says sorry again. Really, really, really sorry this time. But David's concern and his passion is for worship. He says in verse 18, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hand? Now, therefore, let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. In other words, says David, if, if you are doing this on the Lord's behalf, then, then I will worship God and, and we will put this right. But if it is men, if you're listening to lies and rumors, may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I shall have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. In other words, says David, these men and their lies, they're pushing me out of Israel. I can't worship. I have no share in the heritage of my God. I, I, I want to sing his praise. Why are you doing this to me, Saul? And folks, I often think that and in the midst of, of a fire, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of heartache, often what we do here on a Sunday is the thing that gets torpedoed. I'm not going to go to church this week. Just I need to get over whatever it is in my life. I, I'll not go next week either because I'm still not at myself. And I'll not go the week after that. And, and before we know it, we, we're away from God's people. We're away from God's word. And And we have cut ourselves off from the thing that will give us that joy and comfort in the midst of our enemies. David, hurting and wondering and on the run, says, Saul, I want to worship. Let's put an end to this. Let's let's get back to, to normal. Let me come again and sing praises to my God. Folks, I pray that this wee place of ours that we call Eden Grove is is like a shelter in the storm for you and me. That when the world is lined up against us and when the souls of our lives are are chasing us down the street and we just wish it was all over, 
we would be here more often than we are anywhere else. And we'll come and we'll sit and we will hear God speak. And the Spirit moves. And he whispers to us, you are loved. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the nonsense. Get the chin up. Have strength in your legs. You are loved and I will get you to the finishing line. David wanted to go home. He wanted to see his God again. And that is the tragedy of this, that, that as he is on the run, he is cut off from the worship of his people. And yet there's no bitterness in this man. David cries out to Saul, let's sort this out. And Saul again, really, really, really sorry, David. Really sorry. Really so, 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 so sorry. What does David do? He urges Saul to repent. He urges Saul to, to do business with the Lord. He says in verse 23, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious as day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Saul, listen to me, he says. The Lord rewards every man's righteousness and faithfulness. Saul, do the right thing. Let's, let's put this aside. Here is your spear. I don't want it, O king. Send one of your young men to get it. I didn't kill you. Let's put this right. Let's end it. The tragedy is, folks, that, that despite this plea and despite the sorry that Saul says, he doesn't repent. The amazing verse comes in the beginning of verse chapter 27 when, when David says in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. David was no fool. And David, despite listening to this really, really, really sorry moment, he knew rightly that Saul hadn't changed. There was no calling on to the Lord. There was no sacrificing to the Lord. There was no weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was, a, it was a sorry until the next time I get you. And when I get you, it's all over. But folks, I want you to see the tenderness of David and that for his enemies. And tonight in response to what I have said and in the mess of your life and the mess of your situation, your challenge is not to go home tonight and to slap all around you. But your challenge is to go home tonight and do what the Lord says in Matthew 5. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's one verse that I am rubbish at. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Friends, that's not an easy thing. But in response to this passage, I think it is the thing. The Lord doesn't promise that we'll get back to our wee houses tonight and everything's going to be okay. The Lord doesn't promise that everything will be fixed next week or the week after. But the Lord is for us. And the angel of the Lord encamps around us. Folks, you've probably not heard of Stanislav Petrov. He's not very famous, 
but he is a man that prevented World War III. Back in the early 80s, the Russian computers had gone a wee bit haywire. They told Stanislav Petrov, who was a, a low-ranking official in the Russian army, that the Americans had fired five nuclear weapons. And if he had followed orders, then what he was supposed to do was push the button and fire back. The only thing was, Stanislav Petrov kind of reckoned that it just seemed a bit odd. So he waited, he trusted his wisdom, he trusted his experience, and he didn't push the button. He didn't retaliate. He didn't start a war. And the amazing thing is about Stanislav Petrov, he, he was neither rewarded, nor was he punished. Folks, we cannot say the same tonight in our lives. We know that as we walk this life where tribulation will come, we will finish our days with a great reward. Christ does not call us to World War III and to constantly fight for our name. Instead, he calls upon us to trust him and to rest in him as he fights for us. 2 Timothy 4 ends this way. Paul says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. All deserted me. No one pushed the button. No one took my side. But the Lord stood by and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued, says Paul, from the lion's mouth. And may this verse be yours tonight, folks. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory, says Paul, as do we, forever and ever. Amen.